KPFA Radio is proud to present The Herbal Highway, which is a show that enhances the community's knowledge of herbal medicine and alternative choices to standard medical practices for healing. In order to have balanced life, The Herbal Highway actively supports and promotes indigenous land rights, protection of sacred sites, and the sustainability of the earth as integral parts of individual, community, and global healing. Hosted and produced by Karen Sanders and Sarah Holmes. Additionally hosted by Emiliano Lemos and Renee Camila. Please enjoy the following interview that previously aired live on KPFA Radio. Hello, I'm Sarah Holmes, host of The Herbal Highway. My guest today is Greg Saris, chairman of the Great and Rancheria, currently serving his 15th consecutive term. He is also an author known for his fiction writing. Today, we talked about his recently published biography, Becoming Story, a journey among seasons, places, trees, and ancestors. I was honored to get this time with Chairman Saris, and I'm grateful to the many people it took to coordinate this interview, the folks at Heyday Press, his staff, and of course, our staff here at KPFA. He was such an open and gracious guest. I was so glad that we were able to make that time happen. Chairman Saris, welcome to the Herbal Highway. Oh, uh, Hello, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I want to start by really sincerely thanking you for taking time away from your many responsibilities to talk with us and also to offer you the opportunity if you'd like to introduce yourself further. Well, yeah, I think everything you said is correct. I, um, you know, when here in the Bay Area, um, people ask you how you are, and they mean it in Los Angeles. They don't ask you how you are, they ask you what you do. And I always say, well, I'm a novelist, a screenwriter, a professor, and an Indian chief. What are you? Um, it's uh, sadly, I guess, or happily for me, it's all that is true, <laughs> not a joke. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been serving my tribe as chairman for 30 years. Beautiful. Beautiful. And will you will you share for people who are listening to really like ground our conversation today in place because we're talking about uh, your relationship to place? Um, what is the the territory of your nation? All right, <clears throat> the feder. I'm, we're I'm uh, we're <clears throat> excuse me the Federated Indians of Great Rancheria, and um, we are comprised of. Southern Pomo from like Sonoma County, and then Coast Miwok from all of Marin County. So we are a combination of um, Hokan-speaking people, Pomo people, or Penutian-speaking people, um, Coast Miwok. Um, and, um, <clears throat> you know, we were put on rancherias, and, you know, we went through the Mission period, and then the Mexican period, and then the early American period. And finally, they, uh, in 1910, the government created small reservations or rancherias for the so-called homeless Indians of this uh, California, and they put all of us on Grayton. So anybody who was a designee around here, <coughs> excuse me, um, mm-hmm. was put on the uh, Grayton Rancheria. So we're basically people who are comprised of the descendants of Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo peoples. There were many da- nations here. In fact, there were more people in this area and parts of Central California than there was anywhere else in the New World outside of the um, present site of, or Mexico City, which is the, the site of the Aztec capital. 
So there were um, many, many people. We were many different small nations here, um, and we are the survivors of of um, the those nations after having survived the Spanish, Mexican, and early American periods here. Right. Thank you. And will you also, um, because I just want this to be in people's mind's eye, describe the, the physical terrain, what the, what the land looks like, what someone might see on this land? Oh, it's, it's a, well, of course, now it's a, greatly compromised in many ways as a, as a result of, um, you know, the farming and the European uh, coming and so forth. But it's a very complex and varied landscape. So you have um, the dry eastern hills that are rocky in places, and then you have the large valleys that are pl- almost plains. And then, of course, when you go west, you have the redwoods, which totally different environment. So within our Aboriginal territory here, you had several different environments, including the marshlands, the wetlands. So you had wetlands, you had redwood trees, um, you had dry rocky mountains, um, and just uh, uh, just so many incredible animals. It was like almost the African savanna, in the valleys and in the foothills here. Great herds of elk pronghorn and deer were here, uh, grizzly bears. I said there were more people here than anywhere else, but there were more grizzly bears here than uh, than people. And so we had mountain lions and, of course, wolves, beavers, uh, lots of things you don't see today. And then um, the water, the area was just, just so rich with waterfowl. Uh, stories abound of the waterfowl flying up in the marshlands and the wetlands uh, and obliterating the sun for two hours at a time uh, so thick and so many birds and that's one of the reasons uh, you know so the the environment supported so many people we also Sarah uh, that was combined with a philosophy where everything was sacred and you didn't kill or use things um, that uh, you didn't need um, in fact, shows of material wealth. Now, this and I'm like, I mean, this isn't for all indigenous people, but generally, Kosmiwak and Pomo peoples, um, shows of physical wealth were looked down upon, um, and um, there was important trading. Most of the most of the villages, nations were around or on bodies of water, and as you know, water connects everything. So um, the, politi- the health of the water, be they the streams, the lagoon, the lakes, were, would always be indicative of the political health of the people. So that if somebody that was up in the foothills wasn't taking care of the streams and pruning back uh, the, the uh, willows and things that grew there, the people down in the lagoon area where the water goes would become um, very... Uh, frustrated or angry, and you'd start to have some kind of trouble. Um, so again, we every we had societies where interconnections. You were constantly reminded of the interrelatedness to nature that you had, but the interrelatedness you had simultaneously to one another and to each village. It was a constant reminder. Um, we also had a lot of what we call secret societies um, where young women and men 
um, were initiated into secret societies, uh, usually a little around puberty or after. And um, in order to belong to some of these societies and train in these societies, um, you, uh, many of them required that you abstain from meat and sex for up to seven years, which, by the way, notice that kind of um, social-slash-religious infrastructure, if you will, kept the population down. So, um, and, the, and these societies were closely related and uh, kept the population down, and you weren't eating a lot of meat. So it kind of um, it worked well, and sustained us for time immemorial. I mean, we've been here, you know, people like to say 10,000 years, but if you start doing that, who's counting, Sarah? <laughs> right, right. I think we can't comprehend that kind of time frame, or at least I can't, honestly. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, mean, I appreciate... People, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead and finish. Um, I was going to say, we were here so long, and our tales tell the tale of the last time the waters rose up, and there are stories of uh, up in uh, the Kashaya Pomo on the coast of uh, the Gualala River that there was a whale in the uh, inland bay there at the time the waters rose up, and of course the ethnographers classified that as a myth when they were studying us, and lo and behold, three or four years later in the early 60s, geologists were there and they found whale fossils right where we'd been pointing for 10,000 years, and then they went up to Mount St. Helena, where we said we went when the waters rose up, and lo and behold, a carbon-dated um, uh, smoke and carbon on the walls of these caves, and which dated to the exact same period. So, you know, we watched, we watched uh, the bay, uh, the San Francisco Bay, when it was cold, when it uh, was nothing there, and we watched it fill with water. Um, so. We've been here a long time, and uh, um, I think if you're here in a study a landscape and take the time in your life, even moments, to just study one place, as Scott Mamaday says, the 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 glare of sun at noon in a place. Um, all of these things, uh, we had lots of time, um, and and uh, a pretty wonderful kind of life here. Of course, I don't want to idealize or romanticize. Uh, indigenous cultures in any place. Certainly, we were always human and uh, had our issues. But uh, there was virtually no physical warfare here um, because uh, we did not, uh, we had all these secret societies. And if you had to hit somebody, you were indicating or use physical force, you were indicating that you had no spiritual protection or power. Um, we always believed that everything in nature, the smallest stone or blade of grass, the smallest bird, had power. Uh, even me, I would have, even if I was a good person, if you violated me, my songs and the things I had would come back and get you. The Europeans, when they came, and including the Franciscans, Junipero uh, Serra and his padres, they considered us the lowest, most uh, uh, least sophisticated of the indigenous peoples of uh, the America of America here, but remember, Europeans always tend to see Sarah, um, and all of us, for that matter, not just Europeans, but all of us tend to see things through our own lens and what we value. So the Europeans saw the Plains Indians having organized warfare, which of course is what the Europeans recognized and valued. 
they didn't understand the subtlety of the California Indians. As I kind of joke and say, we didn't fight or have to shoot you with an arrow or do something like that. Uh, we just, you got hexed, you were poisoned, as we used to say, or witched, and you dropped dead, or somebody in your family would have bad luck or drop dead the next day. So um, it was much more subtle here. Uh, but again, that was something that the European culture uh, couldn't understand um, when they saw us and figured we spent so much time um, weaving baskets, uh, praying, dancing, and so forth. We had a lot of time to do that. Um, I asked Mabel McKay, the great uh, late uh, medicine woman who was so influential in my life, I said, well, what did people do all day, you know? Uh, of course, when the salmon were running or acorns fell, there was a lot of work to do. But she said, uh, we wove baskets and we thought about God. And I thought, what a, what, that sounds pretty good to me, art and philosophy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and you're, it's, when you're describing the, the range of land and geography, it's such a rich, well-resourced area too, right? And somewhat oh, temperate yeah. weather that um, there weren't necessarily those geographic struggles of some of the Plains people, um, that there was that time, right? There was that time to no, create and... Right, and our, our, since there were so many people living so close together, Sarah, um, our tribal territories were sometimes no more than 15 or 20 square miles And uh, before you're up in somebody else's territory. So you had to trade, you had to interact, and it wasn't rare that in a person's lifetime, he or she, they, they didn't go more than 40 miles from their home village. Um, so, uh, whereas, as you pointed out in the plains, they had to follow the seasons. They had to go, you know, north quite a ways, hundreds and hundreds of miles, north in the summer and south in the winter, where we might have a few temporary villages in the summer, very small, but we had a central or a couple central villages uh, that were permanent, That uh, and we were very much in one place we didn't we we didn't we weren't nomadic in that sense for those of you who are just joining us you're listening to the herbal highway and our guest greg saris you're tuned to 94.1 fm kpfa in berkeley i'm your host sarah holmes and today we're we're talking about so many things because they are really truly all interconnected and i appreciate you connecting um some of those pieces for us today. I'm I'm curious about um, well many things. I have a lot of questions for you. Um, to my understanding, previously you had written fiction, and I'm curious about what prompted you to write this memoir and why now? Like why why did that feel important now for you? Um, uh, good question. And I wish the answer was a, a little more complex. Uh, well, the first part is uh, not complex. Actually, Sarah, um, some of these essays have been written um, six, seven, eight, nine years ago. And um, um, I, my editor at um, Heyday Press um, suggested that we collect the essays or some of the essays that I'd written over the years 
into a book, and uh, we organize them accordingly. And one of the things that we saw, or I saw, that I was always, uh, as I was writing my nonfiction, is that as I think about myself or whatever I'm thinking about, I can only think about it in terms of story, what I know, my own kind of um, subjectivity, if you will. So uh, what I'm sharing with the reader is my experience with place as I dialogue and am part of that place. I, I don't see myself separate from the subject that I'm writing about, but rather sort of in dialogue with it. And, um, and all the things I know, either from books or from the elders who've told me various things. So I negotiate my experience of a place or a thing or, a, or even an ancestor, a person I've known, with, with, all of, with as much of my life as possible. I think it's important for us to, to see how each part of ourselves as much as we can know about ourselves and our experience is tied and influences how we understand things. So when I look at a tree or I look at a landscape, all of a sudden what comes up to me are the stories that I may know about the place, uh, where I am now, um, what somebody might currently be doing, what animals used to be there, what my ancestors told me about the, the place. So I'm always working in, at a place trying to, um, as William Blake the poet might have said, get to the eternity of it, uh, find myself in the everlasting. Um, so uh, and share that. I want to share that with the reader, my experience, so that my way of doing this here in my home might become a blueprint for others to locate themselves in place and not so much time but everlasting time that makes any sense mm -hmm. yes it it does make a lot of sense and and i appreciate hearing that from you because there was as a reader my part of my experience of reading your book was that it was very inviting that you were very generously inviting the reader into your life and into your story and i really appreciated that um well, yeah thank you i think that i love that word generous sarah because um um i i think we we have to we have to see as much and give as much as we know today with there's so many things that you know, are supposed to be Indian or supposed to be non-Indian, and there's all these silos and all of that sort of stuff. And um, I'm simultaneously a, a man in time. Uh, my mother, uh, my my mother was non-Indian. Um, I was adopted. So there there's certain ways that are always a part of me uh, about who I am, and I have to be honest. I can't pretend that I or I can't take one slice of my life and focus on that and see everything and write everything from that one point of view. I'm many points of view. Um, if uh, my, you know, I, uh, I was, you know, my mother, my natural mother was Jewish. I never knew her. She died after I was born. 
um, and I was raised, adopted and raised Catholic, but, you know, I have Jewish blood, American Indian blood, and Filipino blood, and if all these bloods and experiences can get along in this body, um, can't we try to understand them in relationship to one another elsewhere? <laughs> uh, and so we have to claim all of that. I, I remember as a young man, because I'm fair-skinned, you know, people would always say, this is in the 60s, uh, oh, don't say you're Indian, say you're Spanish. And then, of course, the AIM movement came along, Sarah, and they'd say, you're too light, march in the back. Well, look what we do. We keep delegitimizing those within our own ranks. We keep replicating hierarchies imposed by those in power. That has to stop. Nature doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for you, what does becoming story mean? That I am, as I, just as I'm telling stories and living stories my life, I'm simultaneously becoming story. Um, I'm becoming a story. Um, you know, as I, as I get older, and I tell young people this, and they don't, uh, we're, we're living in an interesting time, if I can uh, footnote here for a second. This is the first time in the history of human consciousness where there's a culture, and a very strong and pervasive culture, where youth is privileged over age. We can't learn from what's new. We can only learn from what's been done. Um, so um, w one of the things I, I think about is that your story is going to last forever. You may last 70, 80, 90 years, whatever, if, you know, if all things go well, 100 if things go really well. Um, but, um, you know, y your story is and what you do um, becomes a legacy in a sense, and I guess I might feel bold enough, arrogant maybe enough, to document my story and my stories as a complicated person in place and time, or as I like to say, the, the stretch of eternity that I'm, been, we've been dropped in at the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. It, it makes me think about one of the questions I had for you, which was about the changes that you've seen in nature over your lifetime, which also lends me to the changes that um, you've also seen through the eyes of your ancestors, the changes in nature over time and this rich lineage of story of you know, indigenous science, if you will, of documenting change and experience. And, you know, I, I guess I'm not sure what the exact question is because I think a lot of us listening would know what a lot of those changes are, but maybe how does that land for you? How What do you think about it? How do you feel about it in terms of what we're witnessing? In, in nature at this point in time as we live through this time? Um, that, that, that is, well, Sarah, it's hard to ask the questions you're saying. Many people listening are wondering about that. Um, mm -hmm. But let me just, again, try to go back and answer. I mean, <clears throat> I wasn't here before 
Europeans came and nobody I knew was I'm not that old. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, people always go, you know, what was it like? And I go, you know, or what is it like or something? And I go, I don't know. Or they always ask me, what do Indians think? And I go, I don't I Go ask one. I don't know. I, I only know right. what I can tell you. Right. So, um, but I hear, I understand from what I've heard that um, the landscape was well, very well taken care of. We didn't just sit around as people thought in the 60s and wear beads and walk around naked. Um, we had very strict rules from the secret societies, our religious bases, but they were all, again, predicated on the care of nature. So we, for instance, we did a lot to enhance. We grew with nature. We played an incredible part. Um, we did controlled burning, for instance, a lot of controlled burning. And what that did, besides um, uh, compromise or mitigate the possibility of, you know, huge fires out of control from uh, lightning or an escape fire from a camp or something, but it also um, let the oak trees grow healthy. It fertilized the oak trees, which gave us more acorns then and then each fall we raked out under the acorn trees so that the worms and stuff wouldn't go back up into the tree and we burned what we raked out which again turned into more fertilizer um, we also kept the creeks and clean uh, clean we uh, gardened and took care of the sedge roots that grew along the creeks and the rivers in the sand so that we would have the longest straightest um, roots, sedge roots for basket making. The same with the willow branches. We would prune the willow trees and take care of them. Um, at the same time, um, we kept the marshlands um, full of, in certain areas where there would be uh, reeds and stuff where the ducks and geese could nest. And so w we, we did a lot of work with the place where we were. Um, and had relationships with uh, the grizzly bears and such. Um, all of nature here did very much. Um, uh, the grizzly bears were very prominent and powerful, obviously, as you might imagine, in the dense redwood forest on the west side here. And one of the reasons or ways that the Europeans killed so many pronghorn and elk at once is they would rush them to the edge of the redwood forest and they wouldn't go in. It was almost like a corral because they knew that was the grizzly bear territory. So we had relationships established um, with the natural landscape where we kind of co-evolved and uh, did kind of practice kind of sort of what, you know, you call, you know, natural disturbance now. We, you know, we did that. Um, what happened, of course, when the Europeans came, there was two laws that they imposed immediately. I'm speaking of the Spanish. The first law they imposed was against burning because they would see us doing the controlled burning, and to their mind, we were burning the grass and so forth on the hillsides so that their livestock couldn't eat. Uh, so they didn't, you know, again, seeing things through your own lens. The second thing they imposed upon us was a law against bathing and they put clothes on us, making us more vulnerable to the European diseases, which they brought. Um, but what happened very quickly 
with the cattle and so forth that came. The natural bunch grasses that were deep-rooted were replaced by European, the Italian oat grasses and Mediterranean oat grasses. There were there were not the golden hills of California. That's a myth. That's all. That's all very very recent in uh, geological time. That's in like a blink of our eyes in geological time. The bunch grasses covered the hills, and then all of a sudden they were totally almost totally replaced by these foreign seed. And that took place over a period of just 30, 40 years, 50 years. Um, and because they took so much water out of the land, things became much drier everywhere. The water table dropped. Then there became the, the other thing that they did because the mountain lions, the wolves, and the bears attacked the cattle. They went out in force to kill these animals, and what the Spanish didn't finish doing, the Mexicans and early Americans did. Um, so um, uh, the the and the landscape, rocks, trees, certain animals, they were our, if you will, Sarah, they were our Bible, they were our sacred text. So that an outcropping of rocks, a certain spring of water. Um, Things like that all were associated with stories that taught us who we were and how we were to live in the place. They reminded us. They were our memory. They were our sacred Bible, our text. And all of a sudden, imagine having your text, your Torah, whatever, um, totally burned so that there's just a couple shards left. Um, suddenly, your home is unrecognizable. And that's what we experienced at the same time there was the decimation of our populations from the disease. The animals were destroyed. The environment became totally transformed in the 19th century, so that by the time we get to the 20th century, it's virtually unrecognizable from what it was a mere hundred years before. There's damming, um, everything else. And then, of course, um, the environment's totally compromised. The water table in many places has dropped 50 feet. Um, this is even before there was a lot of massive irrigation and pumping out of the ground and for the rivers. But um, then came in heavy uh, 20th century, heavy, heavy agriculture, dairies and so forth. And I come along, and I grew up in the late 50s, early 60s, and there were still in this area, and parts of Marin County still are, but in Santa Rosa, where I was raised, many, 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 uh, clover fields full of, you know, cows. There were dairies everywhere. There were apple orchards, prune orchards, all the things, a lot of agriculture. And um, I'm sure, again, that was, again, a radical transformation of an environment that had been made already unrecognizable to indigenous people, to our indigenous ancestors. Then we get the uh, post-war uh, urban sprawl here, suburbia, and the dairies are all replaced by, and the farmlands where are growing food are all replaced by endless, endless suburbs, which I witnessed all of that. I remember the dairy where I used to work and milk cows as a kid. Um, I watched it get the dairy farmer get taxed out, and now, you know, there's homes built everywhere there. Um, sacred rocks that I knew that were in people's yards. They got removed. I don't know whatever happened to them. Bodies of water got dammed up. Um, it's so um, there's been a radical transformation. But that said, there is memory, 
and there is still life. The hummingbirds still come to the window and they say, Greg, don't sit there in despair. I'm still out here working. Get up and do something. So the, the birds and the life is still here, and we have to find ways in our lives to see it, to cherish it, and be responsible that it continues the best it can. That's all we can do. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question. You got me going there. <laughs> Good. You, you answered several questions and uh, brought a few more up. We are going to take a short break. We will be right back to continue our interview. KPFA Radio is a community-powered, listener-supported radio station based in Berkeley, California. We are able to bring you this content through donations and support from our listeners. Please consider supporting KPFA through a donation by visiting www.kpfa.org donate. And now let's get back to the program. Welcome back. This is the Herbal Highway. I am your host, Sarah Holmes. Today I'm interviewing Greg Saras about his book, Becoming Story, A Journey Among Seasons, Places, Trees, and Ancestors. And um, Greg, before our break, you were speaking to the connections. This this is a place where I can start to um, lose my words because you start to see and understand and feel how everything is literally connected to everything else. And I know a lot of times on the herbal highway, we're, we're focused on health. And so we're looking at, you know, even within an individual mind, body and spirit and how you can't separate any of that out. And also I'm appreciating hearing you speak to, we can't separate out um, ourselves as human beings from nature. And that's something that I try to speak to also. So I really appreciate um, you talking about this. And one of the things I wanted to bring up was in your chapter, The Ancient Ones, you wrote, and I quote, as the redwoods suffered and fell, so did the indigenous people. And you were you were speaking to this already a little bit. I just wanted to give that space if there's something more you want to say about this this point. Well, it is interesting because um, you know that the the people who came here um, with a, you know their purposes in mind and their agendas in mind and their religions. Um, in mind, um, had a very, saw things very differently from what we did. I mean, the land was something to be captured for the king or, you know, and again, there was an entitlement. And um, so just as people would disregard another person, they would disregard if a person was in their way, let's say, for what they wanted to do. Likewise, they would disregard a tree, uh, the redwoods, or see how the redwoods could be used. Those of us who survived, the redwoods got cut up to build, chopped down to build San Francisco, a port, again, commerce. And the Indians who survived, us indigenous people here, we were used as farm labor. Well, we were used as labor in the missions and then uh, labor on the ranchos, General Vallejo's ranch, and then ultimately as indentured servants here 
in California with our first piece of legislation that the state of California passed in 1850 was called the Act for the Government and Protection of Indians, which legalized Indian slavery and was not repealed until three years after the end of the Civil War. So for those of us who had survived here, we were used as slaves um, uh, for labor here on the early uh, California, early Americans' ranches and farms. And um, so what, what, what one does to one thing, one does to another. Um, I think the original sin, Sarah, is separation. Once you see yourself separated for whatever reason from another human being or from the landscape or from a bird, um, if you don't do everything you can to reconnect, you're going to have a kind of disease that's going to spread. I call it the separation disease. And, um, you know, the Western world is kind of uh, predicated on some stories that are um, understandable but not healthy. And though it happened way before, but there's a predominant, if I could just track here, a story about separation. So you take the Israelites who were freed from slavery, and granted, they had a horrible situation. They were an enslaved people. And they're out in the desert. They've gotten out of slavery. And they're told that um, they're chosen. And they're told that they're entitled to a homeland. Well, that, and we can understand, of course, nationalism under circumstances where nationalism for survival is a group of people, a nation of people. We can certainly understand that, Sarah. But it's dangerous and it gets replicated. When you have somebody who thinks that they're chosen and entitled, they can go somewhere and say, I'm entitled to have this land. I'm chosen. And notice the subsequent religions that have come out of that tradition continue to do the same thing with all kinds of marchings and controlling and colonizing other lands. So Christianity did it. Mohammedism did it. And what happens is you have people separated from a landscape, and suddenly instead of the landscape being home, their home is in the sky or elsewhere. <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, they are entitled to dominate. So how do you, how do you and I'm not putting down any religion because there's wonderful, wonderful aspects, truly, of, of all our sacred texts, but how do you, how do you, make us come home. How do now, in this world, where this mobile world of war, how and, and, and chaos in nature and else, the question is, how do we come home? How do we feel safe? You're not home um, un, unless you're safe. And so how do, we, how do we come home with nature and with one another? Until we really sit down and work on that one, we're, continue, we're going to continue to be a people afraid of anything that we're separated from. Uh, we're going to project bad things on, a, or, on things people were separated from. We won't understand people were separated from or nature. And so how do we start growing roots, if you will, to one another and to the natural world? We've got to. We've got to. In our daily lives, in our business lives, in our writing lives, as authors, as um, so on, and 
we've those are so those are things that are just crucial that we must do i get um and i'm sure you know my students all get to, you know a lot of despair but no as i said earlier about that hummingbird coming to me and as a great uh biologist philosopher gregory bateson said 50 60 years ago um, if we're all lemmings going over a cliff, Sarah, we still have two choices. One, we can drop with the rest as we go. Or two, we can scream and say, hey, there's another way. And my friends and the people I admire and the reason I write my books is I want to be a screamer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I I will often say, I appreciate your hummingbird reminder. I'll often say, you know, when you're in despair or, or just not feeling immobilized, not understanding how to move forward in a good way, it's like, look out the window and if there's a tree, look at what the tree is doing, you know. Um, That's exactly right. Um, so um, I'm here, I'm enduring the tree of saying, uh, I've got, you know, sudden oak, or I've got this and that, and you're sitting in a warm house that, you know, took some of my relatives to build. Do something, Greg. <laughs> uh, you can just even come out and say hello. You can spread some ashes or something on the ground. Give an offering. Uh, I'm I'm your relative. I'm your relation, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to share a little bit about what you love and appreciate about the oaks? I okay. I you know I grew up with them. They're second. Uh, I would say second nature to me. That's a little bit mm-hmm. of a pun here, isn't it, Sarah? But <laughs> I appreciate um, it, pun. Okay. So um, there are so many different kinds of oaks, and um, I love the oak trees. And what I also love about the oak trees, because I live among oaks up on Sonoma Mountain and bay trees, by the way. But um, the oaks are there's so many different varieties. And for us, there's so many different, each of them provides a different kind of acorn. So first of all, the oaks are homes. I mean, if you like woodpeckers and pileated woodpeckers, those clowns of nature, um, of, and all the birds and the, the animals that are so dependent on the oak trees, just I'm so appreciative to be able to look out my window at an oak tree because it becomes, it is the home um, of so many birds, squirrels, and then, of course, because of the birds and the squirrels, it attracts the bobcats on the ground, and um, it's just remarkable. They're just remarkable in the diversity of life that they share. For indigenous people, there's the varieties of different oaks provide different kinds of acorns that provide different types of uh, mush and so forth. The, the the live oak, which is the most difficult to harvest because they're smaller but and greasier, uh, make are the best for bread, making acorn bread. Uh, the tan oak, which isn't exactly an oak, but the tan oak and the valley oaks are the best for acorn mush because they're big, meaty nuts. Um, of course, they have to be leached, but uh, uh, that's one of my favorite foods still. Um, you know, I remember my aunt's uh, always making it all of our spring ceremony, fall ceremony, and our, our fall ceremony is often called our acorn ceremony, and uh, acorn dinner where we have a lot of acorn mush um, to eat with seaweed and stuff, and it's it's wonderful. The old people say uh, if you ate acorn mush, you'd live a long time. Um, 
it's a carbohydrate with the highest protein. So uh, it's a great food. It's a lot to prepare because you have to leach it and so forth. But um, it's a it's it sustained us for a long, long time, and we grew cultures around it. Um, as, the, as the land heated up, and the pines kind of in some areas, the smaller pines, or excuse me, so there was more water, and the pines went away. More oaks grew. We, over the you know last seven, eight thousand years, went from more pine nuts to acorns. So um, we we are an acorn culture here, uh, with along with the birds and the squirrels and uh, the deer, uh, every so many other. Uh, animals and creatures and life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And is there, um, is there one of the plants that you'd like to speak to that's coming to mind? Well, well the one that brings I always think of, and we, um, we didn't, I don't, I know that they used to use it sometimes as the blood purifier, a tea, and so is the angelica root. And it's very, I think, important to understand that angelica was our sacred plant. Um, you carry it on you. You chew it before you speak to speak good words, the dried root, that is. Um, you, um, the Indian doctors, medicine people, would always shave the dried root and smoke it in a pipe before, before or during their doctoring ceremonies. It's to keep bad spirits away. It's to cleanse. Um, most people think of Indians, um, you know, using sage, um, smudging with sage. We didn't. We used angelica root. That's what. There wasn't sage. We didn't use sage here. It was the angelica root. And um, I worry that with the uh, damming of the creeks and concreting so many of the creeks and stuff, that the environment where the angelica grow is getting compromised. But um, that was a very, very sacred plant for us. It, well, it is. I mean, it wasn't was. It is. And so I always, always think of the angelica plant as, our, you know, our sacred plant. I remember Mabel McKay smoking it in a pipe before and during her doctoring when she doctored the sick. And would often, I remember her blowing it on a patient and things like that. So angelica is, you know, kind of, important to me. The other thing I remember picking is monkey wart or monkey plant and um, uh, with its orange flowers and uh, that was used because I had asthma. It was used for asthma and things as I recall and cold. So, um, and so I think of that. I also think of the bay tree. The bay tree, I live among bays. We use the pepper nuts um, uh, were a lot and I remember my aunt's I uh, used to dry the pepper nuts the, uh, the, um, from the uh, um, bay trees, the bay nuts, and uh, husk them and then kind of grind them into a fine kind of very fine dust and um, then roll them into balls and bake them. And they taste like, they were good, they taste good. They're like bitter uh, chocolate. They taste like bitter chocolate and they have a lot of caffeine in them. So we wove a lot of baskets. We stayed busy around here. So I love the bay trees, the oak trees, for all the memories that I have they give me of my family and what they do. We also used the bay leaves as a deodorant so that when we were out and about, um, uh, the, we, the animals that might be 
that are uh, physically more powerful than us wouldn't necessarily smell us and want to track us. So um, uh, those things are all, uh, those trees, those things are uh, right at the top of my list in memory here as we speak, Sarah. Mm. Thank you for sharing those memories. Um, just to switch gears a little bit, um, because we are in community here in the Bay Area and greater Bay Area of our listeners, is there anything happening currently uh, for your rancheria that people not that aren't members could be of support, whether it's legal battles or restoration projects, or is there anything currently going on that um, people could support in some way? Well, certainly um, um, the tribe, our tribe is doing very well, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but not all tribes are um, uh, in such a fortunate position as uh, we are. Um, <clears throat> but Anything you can do to support your local Indian health centers, um, drug rehabilitation centers, we've, as, as with many communities, but we're particularly hit by the opioid crisis, the fentanyl crisis, any kind of support in that area. Also, if there's any farms or uh, any um, um, indigenous kinds of projects or farms, certainly support those. Um, I'll talk a minute as I can have a platform here about my tribe because people will always say, oh, you have a casino and that's terrible and that's people are gambling and all of that. Well, um, I, being a professor and all of that, I, I had never been in a casino, but I realized that, um, you know, uh, once I wrote a bill to get us restored, we were illegally terminated as a tribe in 1958. I wrote a co-authored a bill that I got through Congress. Uh, President Clinton signed it December 27, 2000 and restored our rights. And uh, we have about now near 1,500 members, 1,500 members, um, Sarah. And we, um, were, we once we got restored and got our rights back, they didn't give us any land back, but they said, well, you can apply for housing grants and things like that. And people began to discuss the C word, which was casino and not cancer. And I thought, uh, I don't, I don't know. I've never been in a casino. I don't know anything about them. I have a Ph.D. in modern thought and literature from Stanford. What did I know? But um, as my non-Indian mother said, you can't leave your folks now. Um, they're going to go that way, and there's so many good examples of bad examples of tribes getting ripped off. So I said, okay, I'll stay with you. I talked to the tribal council, and I said, if this can be a platform for social justice and environmental stewardship, if we can take care of our people, get them in college, and we can take care of our people, put a roof over all of our heads, and simultaneously take care of the non-Indian world. Again, uh, a mission of social justice and environmental stewardship, I'll do it. And long story short, um, I'm very proud, um, built a large casino. We have over, uh, I think, 2,100 team members. All you do is work 20 hours or more a week. You get the Kaiser Gold Cadillac plan. You pay nothing out of your paycheck for total coverage, $10 deductible for brain surgery or aspirin. Um, we uh, also have literacy classes for our folks, our team members. Um, we have anybody who's working on a green card, we pay for it and walk them through the whole citizenship process. Um, within our own tribe, we've turned around an 80% dropout rate from ninth grade to 100% graduate from high school. This is just in the last 10 years. 
Um, and to date, we've given over $200 million in mitigation fees to uh, the city of Roner Park in Sonoma County and over $80 million in charity, uh, including camp, uh, providing money for a campaign to have a quarter cent tax to keep all the parks going forever in Sonoma County. We've created a 50-50 co-management agreement with a 4,000-acre regional park uh, here, Tolay, and the first in the country to do a 50-50 co-management agreement with the federal government to co-manage Point Reyes National Seashore. Um, uh, So uh, that's just happened. So there's been great things that we have been able to do. Uh, Again, over $80 million in charity to environmental matters and uh, social justice matters. We have given the University of California enough money so that all California Indians, whether they're from recognized tribes or non-recognized tribes, can go to UC tuition-free. So, um, you know, we keep doing, um, uh, uh, we're working with the Smithsonian to create a blueprint for classrooms, K through 12, uh, to teach American Indian history and culture. We have a large organic farm, um, and we want to grow. We're growing enough food now for our families, but we want to grow enough food to put in the team dining room for all our people who work for us, and ultimately grow enough food to sell the food at cost in low-income neighborhoods. So folks in low-income neighborhoods can have the kind of produce that wealthier people get from Whole Foods, for instance. That's my platform. I'm really proud of being a leader to having accomplished that. Um, so those are just some of the things that we're doing. Um, and um, going to keep going. Also, just within the culture within the casino, I've totally undone what has been a very binary kind of thing where you had, you know, the women with big breasts and the guys with cigars. I'm proud to say 70% of our workforce is non-white, many immigrants, and we have many uh, transgender folks working for us, many transgender uh, beverage servers, for instance. Um, we the only, as we say at Great, the only thing we don't tolerate is intolerance. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I I have to say, you know, earlier when you were speaking to the amount of natural destruction and that has happened over time in a short period of time what really brings me hope is also when i hear stories of how much um, positive change can happen in a short period of time as well so thank well you know sarah and it is we built a casino it uses water cars going all of that but you're taking the money if other organizations took their weren't greedy and took their money their revenues and turned it to environmental stewardship, turned it to good wages and benefits for people. That's transformative. That's transformative. So I can't fix all of the world, but I can use this as a model about the ways we can begin to do this. Um, And again, um, you know, you know, there's some sacrifices here, uh, you know, and so forth. But um, what you do is you undo business from the inside. You undo it. You undo what has been traditional practices with transformative practices. Mm-hmm. And we've mm-hmm. got to start doing this. I'm just glad that I have the, also the resources to have, if you will, 
the power to have influence to take care of nature and the land, natural landscape. Um, we use the ethics and aesthetics of our ancestors in everything we do in business and the environment. Um, and we stand on those things. The tribe today has 1,500 enrolled members, all of whom are the descendants of 14 survivors, all of whom were women. Um, they got us here, you know, yeah. and uh, we owe it to them. Uh, so, um, uh, and we need the redwoods, we need the trees, we need the birds. Um, they, uh, uh, we, 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 we need them. But they're there. I, I, I see cougars uh, up on the mountain. I, I, oh, it's wonderful. They're, they're there. And every time you see a wonderful bird or a bobcat or rabbits or a group of deer, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Absolutely. Greg, we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope uh, people will enjoy my book, Becoming Story. Thank you for listening. You can listen to The Herbal Highway on KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, live every Tuesday from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or stream live through kpfa.org. Archives are available through kpfa.org. You can also listen through several podcast platforms, including but not limited to Apple, Listen Notes, Podbean, TuneIn, and Player FM. You can also catch our Herb of the Month videos on KPFA's YouTube channel at KPFA Radio. Find us at The Herbal Highway on Instagram and Facebook at The Herbal Highway. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to find more KPFA radio content, log on to www.kpfa.org. Also follow us on social media by visiting Facebook at KPFA 94.1 and Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at KPFA Radio. Plus, check out our KPFA TV video content on YouTube and Twitch.tv at KPFA Radio.